bite-sized cloud dog. Welcome to Growing Trends. I am thrilled to be on your show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. We're in about the countries these days. Well, not that that should surprise me with your energy and enthusiasm and mind. That's great. That's great. And how old is Growing Trends? I should know that by looking at your website. Oh, it's not that old, actually. We've, we've been doing this for a couple of years. You with your wife? No. I have a co-host, Anne. She's not available today, but she's a Nebraska girl who knows all her perennials. You know, I'm this crazy Brit that was brought up in horticulture, basically. Well, the combination sounds great. It's different. Uh, it means that your plant names are different to mine. I, I, w- I learned the Latin, and we had to do all these stick ideas with Latin names and things every week at university. It's kind of fun. Oh, gosh. A lot of us still, uh, well, know a, a bit of the Latin, you know, the Latin names, but I find that, especially when I'm dealing with my audiences, which tend to be garden hobbyists, garden clubs, and different types of events, sometimes they they get cross-eyed when they hear too many Latin names, so I like to try to use common names as much as I can, and if I have to distinguish it with a Latin name, I will. Sometimes I feel that people get the sense that you're talking over their head if you're using too much Latin, and to certain audiences that I talk to. So, I go either way. I, I think you're right. The, the reason for using Latin is, in, there, there's a different way of buying plants in England. As, as a company, we would go direct to the nursery and buy them direct from a nursery, and either right. pick them up or have them delivered, because it's a very small country. So, you know, a four-hour journey and you're halfway across England. So what that meant was we could purchase them at wholesale prices and not have to go through a secondary intermediate tree, if you see what right. I mean. Yep. And, and so prices of parts were a lot, lot lower, a lot, lot lower. These days, the nurseries are so in tune with what they're doing, you can actually order them direct from the nursery and have them delivered direct to site. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Which is, you know, that's an amazing time-saving. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Wow. But not here in America. No. Here you pay um, much, much more. Um, problem that a lot of the plants I find is this. When I first started, many of the plants were bare root. Mm-hmm. And you'd buy things like potentilla and all the trees. Even things like salic would be, um, cornus would be bare root because they grow better. Mm-hmm. The trouble with that is that you can't, you can ship them, but you've got to use them pretty quickly because of the conditions. And, right. And most planting in England is done between, when, when, well, when you were doing bare root, it would be November through to March. We only had two weeks of frost. You have much more than that. Wow. Two weeks? Yeah, two That's weeks, good. usually in February. The rest of the year, it's um, mild. In fact, you can, as long as the temperature is above a couple of degrees um, centigrade, you can pave and do everything really there's no problem with cement and concrete mm-hmm. um, you might have to protect it occasionally but it's a, an all-year job which yeah, makes yeah. it much easier to get the skills and keep the staff right right exactly huh. you know it's, it's a bit different here and then and the, and the, then you have to winterize the gardens here and in england the, the grass stops growing around about november it might you might need to give it a cut in january but not very often and so if you cut the grass what 23 times a year you get the most immaculate lawn. If you cut it ten times a year, it's going to be four or five inches tall every time you cut it. Hmm. Wow. It's just different. Yeah. Uh, i got to get back over there. 
I keep saying I've got to I've talked to Adrian and said I I got to get back over and see him and and travel around there. I can't wait. I'm going to do it at some point in, in the upcoming years. Hopefully sooner than later. So. Oh, there's some great places to visit. You know, every actually the whole of Europe is pretty interesting these days. Yeah. Especially Germany with all their green um, pushing, you know, for, for growing plants over buildings, all sorts of things. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to. I absolutely have to. That's on my little bucket list here now. It's, uh, I, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've always got wishful thinking. I'm a perennial optimist. I always call myself that. So. Well, that's the way to be. So, tell me how you got started. I, I oh, kind of a number uh, of in- books. Yeah, well, it's, it, you know, I got into this business probably very differently than many. I actually wasn't interested in, in gardening as as a kid, uh, even though my grandfather is uh, was a commercial vegetable gardener on eastern Long Island and had acres and acres of crops that he would grow and sell commercially. I still didn't have the garden bug, and I eventually got it actually out of uh, desperation because... Early on in my marriage with my husband, before we had a child, we fell into some very difficult financial times. Even though I had a full-time job at a university near me, we still needed more money. So one day, as I was driving to work, I would, I'd always be passing by this five-acre field-grown perennial center, garden center. And one day, I just pulled into the driveway, went up to the door, knocked on the door, and I asked this woman, Melba, her name, I said, Melba, I I need a part-time job on the weekends, anything to earn some extra cash. And she asked me if I knew anything about gardening, and I knew nothing. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you what a daylily was or a daisy. But she had compassion on me. She thought, she just, you know, we somehow clicked, and she said, you know what? All right, you can start working weekends here. I think you have potential. You look like you could be a hard worker. So she hired me. And I went out to those acres of fields of perennials and all these greenhouses for propagation. I just fell in love with it, handling the material, learning the material, helping her in the design work. It became a passion. And then that passion, I turned into a business. So I took the hobby that grew out of this opportunity to earn some extra cash into a really a great business that I started 20 years ago. The business name is Perennially Yours, and it's all about teaching, encouraging, and inspiring gardeners of all different ages, of all different abilities, how to be happier, better gardeners, both for themselves in enjoyment and also as far as how they're gardening um, on our planet, you know, with not using pesticides, low water, low fertilizer. So I got into gardening, actually, because I needed, what, six seventy-five an hour just to, to be able to pay some bills so I could... You know, I was counting nickels to pay gas at that point in my life. So, well, kind of interesting. It's not usually the traditional way. Most people don't go into gardening to make money. <laughs> well, I don't I think know. That's weird to we, say. we did really well in, in uh, England, to be honest. Yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, here's the thing. One of the interesting statistics you'll find out when you do a little bit of research is that the average American spends $350 or so a year Mm-hmm. On his garden. In England, it's ten times that figure. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you, you could... Here's a little trade secret for everyone listening to Growing Friends. <laughs> when I used to visit um, properties in England to um, discuss, design, and build, 
you looked at the value of the car, which was always purchased, it was never leased, and that was the limit of the price that they'd spend. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's a quick, uh, easy read on kind of what you're going to be doing uh, on that property. But, you know, here in America, especially if you're not in land, if you're not by definition a landscape architect or someone who's gone through academia for that business, my background was nothing in, in horticulture. This was just one of those jump in, push up my sleeves, get my hands in the dirt, try to make some, you know, extra cash on weekends to supplement my income. I didn't know where that was going to go. All I knew at the time was immediate solution for us in some ways financially. And it became, Gosh, just the center of my life, and and I love I love what I do. It's just great. Package of books from Australia. Oh my gosh, that you ordered? I, no, I have a friend. Well, he was my how's this? He was my course lecturer mm-hmm. in horticultural studies at university, and his mm-hmm. wife Linda has just written a children's book called Randy's Long Walk. This is one of your books that you're that you're doing that you you're getting people to no. write in different. This one's already done, and it kind of inspired me. Linda actually, um, they live in um, Western Australia, and John's a consultant who travels all over the world. He's in Canada at the moment. And Linda fell and broke her back. Oh, my God. Sound familiar? Oh, my God. Yeah. So she now, she's fine. I mean, she has a few problems, obviously, but Mm. she... She's um, determined to uh, not take any notice of that sort of issue, so she yeah. did this walk of four hundred some miles. Oh my goodness! God bless her. Yeah, absolutely. And and so what she did was she made this um, children's book with fantastic um, illustrations and things. It's called um, Grandy's Long Walk. And this kind and of is a, a journal of her journey, kind of in a fun no. way for children. Oh, it's okay. designed because she's really concerned about um, the fact that most children don't have uh, enough contact with nature. Okay, got it. Huh. And yeah. um, it'll be one of the ones you, you know, I'll interview her shortly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Wow. So, really cool. It was ironic, really, wasn't it? Yeah, really interesting. <laughs> wow. So, back, well. to, back to your um, thing. So, you were really self-taught all the way around. Yeah. I've been, you know, I've had the opportunity to have many people like yourselves and others who have come into my life and teach me and encourage me and, and share tidbits with me and, and show me how to do things. And a lot of my own mistakes, I'm like, well, wow, that was a, that didn't work, so let's try it this way. So it's one of those, you know, just a constant learning curve for me. And prior to actually going full-time in this business, I had been in academia, but as an admissions officer recruiting students for a private college in upstate New York. For 18 years, I was an associate dean admissions, and I recruited kids across the country to come to our school. And then I decided to really move into opening my own business based on my love that I had developed as gardening. So that would give me the flexibility of a stay-at-home mom who finally had a child, and I wanted the flexibility to be at my son's baseball games or different things and work my schedule around his schedule. So that's why I opened the business. And I said, oh, it's something I love. I can work around his schedule. And that was 20 years ago, and it just has blossomed. And now he's going to be graduating from college. <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you get into book writing? 
I got into book writing, what, five years ago. I did my first book called The Ultimate Flower Gardener's Top Ten List. And it's for gardeners in zones three to eight. You know, that's the plant material I primarily talk about. You know, initially people kept saying, gosh, Carrie, write a book. You know, you've got a way about how you speak, encourage people. Put your words into into writing, into a book. And I was like, it seems so daunting, the whole idea of writing a book. But I decided to do it, and like the good old roll up the sleeves and let's uh, let's take this on. And once I started writing the book, I really loved it. I like the combination of sharing good practical information with a a fun tone to it to make people smile, to make people laugh as they're kind of learning about gardening or about cool plants that they're interested in. And so that was my first book, uh, 2011. And then I came out a year later with a book just on shade plants and, and designing in shade. The shade gardening is my favorite. So I wrote a book called The Top Ten List for Beautiful Shade Gardens, Seeing Your Way Out of the Dark. That's all about really cool plant material and how to actually create a, a beautiful design either in containers or in the landscape in shade. And then my third book, the most recently published one in February of this year, The Right Size Flower Garden, was really a result of an incident that had happened in my life that I had told you about that turned my life upside down and had me take a fresh look at what I always had considered to be low-maintenance uh, perennial gardening and landscaping. And it helped me fine-tune my lenses so I made those gardens even less work than I ever dreamed they could be just the smart plant choices and design themes. So that was really the purpose of the third book, to to make gardening more pleasing, more beautiful, more planet-friendly for aging and time-pressed gardeners. That's my, that was my theme. So. so, I mean, one of the things we were always taught is to sort of mix and match. So you'd have um, structural uh, shru- um, woodish plants, and then you'd put perennials in with them so that you had some interest throughout the year. But then England is entirely designed for seven and eight. Oh so my gosh. you must, yeah, which makes a huge difference. It's a bit like, what, Seattle or um, Portland or somewhere like that. Right, right, right. And we and, had well, 25,000 plants we could use. Oh my gosh. Well, here, I mean, I'm in zone five. So, uh, I live now in Kennebunk, Maine, uh, which is Zone 5, Southern Maine, about an hour and a half north of Boston. But for all of my life, I grew up in upstate New York, right outside of Saratoga Springs, which is, again, a Zone 5. So my experience has been working with plants that can, you know, handle a Zone 5 or warmer, you know, depending on if I can inch out a little warmer microclimate. But for the most part, my expertise is more Zone 5 and plant materials that can go in within Fiber up, you know, depending on where people live. Yeah. But, which, you know, you which mentioned... Which is around 2,000 plants, isn't it? It's much, much less. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes that's helpful. You know, I think sometimes we get overwhelmed when we have too many choices. That's actually a design theme I put in my Right Size book. It's a little jingle I created that says, less is more is less. And my point is, is now when I take a fresh look at a garden space I'm going to design, instead of working with 30 or 40 different varieties of annuals, bulbs, perennials, shrubs, conifers. I'll select, as I call it, maybe five to ten superhero plants that provide such long interest between foliage, 
flowers, maybe it's stem, bark, interest, whatever. So I'll, re- I'll actually work with a palette of fewer varieties, which means I have to use more of each, repeat them more often because I have a smaller palette to choose from. But the end result is that it's so much less maintenance time because when you do step into the garden to do some maintenance, you're using the same tool, same motion on a number of plants at the same time versus what I used to have, these huge mixed borders with hundreds of different plants. As I moved my way down that garden border doing maintenance, I was always reaching for a different tool or a different action. It was so time-consuming to do maintenance that way. Does, does that make sense the way I said it? Do you yeah, it, it, it does to a certain extent, although you're kind of describing a rosemary theory garden to me with all the um, intricacies of all the perennials and maybe the roses and things. But what, what we used to do, we would always part in odd numbers. Right. So there'd always be a group, and the minimum group would be three. Right. And probably the maximum would be seven. And often we were eight, and, and we certainly didn't prune, except for dead, dying, and diseased wood. I mean, that was just it. The rest yep. of it was just left. And we found that we could get the maintenance down in England to around about a minute a square meter oh. a month. Which That's great. Not, that's not too bad, is it? No, it's not. I never thought of it put in in that time frame, the way you just said it. Well, it's like cutting grass. We cut grass at the rate of about a 1,000 square meters an hour, which is much faster than here. But we use cylinder mowers, and they traveled at very high speeds. Wow. It, it, it's, it's, I, I suppose even the verges, you know, the, the roadsides, they were cut every 10 days in, in London. That's why they look so nice. Wow. And, and it's just a question of um, how you do it. Over here, I'm, I, I've looked at the lawns and things. One of the things we did with the lawn was we often included a brick edge, mm-hmm. a flat brick edge, a proper brick, not a concrete laid thing. And right. they were laid so that the, the grass was half an inch above the brick edge. Right. Right. So it was on a it was on a um, prepared limestone and then mortared down edge all the way round, mm-hmm. and what right. that meant was you never had to edge the lawn. Exactly. No, I you love just it. Ran the you mower over run it and it was done. Mm-hmm. And you as know, long as you kept those radiuses big, you know, sweeping, not tighter mm-hmm. than say a meter or three foot or so, you had right. a beautiful visual aspect to the to the lawn suddenly. Right. But you know what? With a lot of the smaller scale developments in places here, in this, at least where I live, and around the Boston area here in Maine, even where I was in the Albany, Saratoga Springs, a lot of these properties are smaller. Um, they they're, they have small spaces, and you see these long sweeping lines don't apply to some of these smaller places. Where, for instance, no, that's true. where I was in upstate New York, that property, which has been featured in, gosh, many magazines, this property in upstate New York I lived at, that property was only a quarter of an acre. It was 50 feet wide by 200 feet long. And so, you know, yes, I did have sweeping because I love curves better than straight lines. Uh, I like that softer, um, more informal feeling. But reality was I had to have straight lines that was in the number of the spots because I didn't have bigger areas I could sweep around. But I did do what you did. I sunk different, um, I either used sunken flat stones or even Belgian blocks or others that I can run a mower along. Or if I wanted a natural edge, I used one of those power edgers 
from like um, MTD or John Deere that run along on boxes that make a real sharp, clean cut, even at an angle with a steel blade. And I'd run that oh. machine along the edge of the border huh, once every two weeks, and I'd always have a sharp, clean edge to, de- to define the garden with very little work. It's just a pass-through. We, we had the dreaded half moon and the string line. And that's oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what a lot of people, but I just, I love these kind of push along, uh, some people call them commercial edgers or side cutters, but they're not that expensive and they make life just so much easier when you're well, edging a garden. The, the interesting thing is, I think it was 1990 that we started doing irrigation. It didn't really exist residentially unless you were super, super well off. And, um, Toro came over and I became one of their first residential irrigation dealers in London. Mm. And the problem we had was the, the value of the pot, the, the garden was so great that we didn't want to dig it up because of the cost of putting it back. Mm-hmm. So I had to go to Germany and find a special mole that you could actually pump under the ground which took the pipe with it. And then ah. when you took it out, you were able to just connect up we used a different type of pipe. It was much heavier duty. It wasn't PVC. It was um, heavy density polyethylene that could take a, um, a spade hitting it and bounce off. But by doing that um, and paying that little extra for the pipe, we didn't have any reinstatement. None wow. at all. And so we then soon got loads and loads of clients who wanted their lawns and things green all the time because we'd had a hose pipe band for 15 years up until that point. And, uh, oh, it's amazing. But, you know, you're on heavy clay, so the problem with heavy clay in London is that um, the water runs off real fast. So right. we designed an irrigation system. We'd already put irrigation into them, so we designed the irrigation system to recycle the water back into the storage tank and then go back again. Perfect. So we, we were, you know, it was kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, in... Um and up in New York where I was, it was clay. It was heavy clay. I felt like I could make, you know, bring out the potter's wheel and start making a clay, clay sure. artwork out of it. But, you know, now that I'm in Maine, near the, near the ocean, the sandier area, um, I would so much prefer to work in clay soil because, this, as you know, it holds that organic matter longer. Yep. It, it can hold moisture longer. Yeah, you can make it more friable by adding organic matter. But sand is a constant battle to keep organic matter in. It's just always filtering through and breaking down fast. Oh. So, you know, but but in the book, in my new book, The Right Size Garden, one of the things I talk about is because water is so precious, and I'm trying to get people to rethink how much water they're pounding into their lawns and their gardens, mm-hmm. um, is to work with material that can tolerate the the site conditions better. So, yeah, it might limit your list to say, okay, I need a plant that can take incredible heat and uh, has a low water demand to put in this space. It means maybe I'm not working with, well, if it's a shady or like a still bees or other water thirsty plants. It means this is my palette to work with yarrow, to work with different varieties, say, of lamb's ear, of cone flowers, of different plants and shrubs that will will do fine in that location without a lot of supplemental uh, water. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with right-sizing the gardens. It was not, this book was not all about making things life happy for me, which it does. I mean, I'm thrilled with the results of right-sizing my gardens. But it's just as equally involved with being better stewards of our planet and the space that we, our little space on this earth, what are we doing with it? 
And I really wanted to bring those two priorities together when I wrote the book. Thank you all for listening today. We really appreciate your support and tuning in on Growing Trends. Again, make sure to look for us on growingtrends.org for the podcast, or we all are, are on iTunes. You can look for us as Growing Trends there as well.